Good morning. Let's begin with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together and study and for the, for the spring that has sprung and the nice uh, blossoming flowers and trees and the sunshine and, and fill our hearts today with the sunshine of your love that we can know that we have been with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are starting a new quarterly today in health and healing and the lesson title for this week is Praise God from Whom All Blessings Flow. And we're going to talk about healthful living this quarter. And and the question is, why is healthful living important? Can you eat your way into heaven? Oh, several people. Okay. Can you eat your way out of heaven? Can you? Yes. Yeah. Some people said no. Some people said yes. Think about that. Is it possible to have a gluttonous problem and loss of self-governance and so much self-indulgence of some sort that you actually eat your way out of heaven or drink your way out of heaven or drug abuse your way out of heaven? Can you do that? Can avoiding all that stuff and eating a healthy lifestyle get you into heaven? No. No. Okay. So then, what is the primary purpose of healthful living on earth today? Why? Why does it matter? Because our bodies are God's temple. Our bodies are God's temple. Okay, so what does that practically mean? Well, if we want to uh, portray Christ, then we Okay, she says that we want to portray Christ, we want to portray Him. So there's part of aspect is the witness that we give to people. Uh, more than, is there more than that? Yes. If we don't take care of our body, we cannot possibly have a clear mind. And if we do not have a clear mind, God cannot she said if we don't have a healthy body we can't have a clear mind if we can't have a clear mind then we impair uh, the ability for the Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds and God to commune with us and so as I've said in some of my lectures every organ system of your body has as its primary purpose to serve your brain your lungs breathe and your heart beats in order to give oxygen and nutrients to your brain your arms and legs are there to take your brain from place to place so it can interact with people and do things I mean that is the purpose of the organ systems of the body is to keep your brain healthy and as your organs get unhealthy as we get diseased then it impacts the brain and the brain doesn't function as well and it is through the brain that we commune with God we worship we grow we advance we develop and so the healthier our lives our physical health then the more uh, effective our brains can be in developing in any line of study that we apply ourselves to. And you think about this in your own life. Anybody who's been in any type of scholastic work, schoolwork, did you want to take your final exams when you had the flu and a fever of 103? No. When your physical body is not healthy, your brain does not work as well, does it? No. So this is one of the primary reasons for, for healthful living. Now, it's interesting that um, in Old Testament times, they had health laws. And one of the things, see, Satan is tricky. He will take a truth, he will twist it slightly to make it into a distortion. Truth, is it true or false that at the cross, when Christ died, resurrected, that the Old Testament ceremonial laws were, were nailed to the cross and done away with? True or false? False. True. We don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. We don't have to, um, we don't have to uh, ceremonially wash ourselves so many times. We don't have to avoid certain foods to stay ceremonially clean. All that's true. It's nailed to the cross. Where's the distortion? And this is the distortion that most of Christianity is, is sucked into. That when Christ said it's not what goes into a man that makes him uh, uh, clean or unclean, it's what comes out of the man. Talking about the heart issue. And, and 
when the Peter had his vision, you know, eat anything, this type of thing, people have understood that the ceremonial law was done away with. But where's the distortion? The distortion is the idea that when the ceremonial laws were done away with, that the laws of health were done away with. The laws of health have not been done away with. And so if you go out and eat Big Macs and fries uh, every day of the week, you will undermine physical health. Undermining physical health will undermine mental health, will undermine the spirit temple's efficiency to commune with God. And as we get physically diseased, are we as free and capable of carrying out ministry for God? No. So Satan's subtle little strategy is to tell people, since the ceremonial laws are done away with, it's okay to eat anything, and it doesn't matter. It's true we won't be ceremonially unclean if we eat anything, but it's not true we will have physical and mental health at the same level as, as if we would if we ate a healthy diet as God prescribed for us. So we have to have a little discernment there between Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Is there some aspect of character development that is connected with healthful living? Is healthful living more than just physical health? Does it have to do with your character? Oh, yeah. The last fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control. Does it require an exercise of self-governance to to govern what you eat and don't eat, what you drink and don't drink, what you inject into your veins and don't inject into your veins? Does it help you develop character to exercise governance over your appetite? Sure it does. Sure it does, yes. And so this is more than just physical health. It also goes to healthful living has an impact on our character development. And will that then transcend or extend in our lives beyond just healthful living? The point of developing self-control. If you develop self-control, will that help you in areas other than just healthful living? Yes. Like where else might that help you? So when we think about James, and James talks about the man who governs his tongue, that man is self-controlled. So that would be another area of self-governance. So, so learning how to govern ourselves in the area of, of healthful living then actually helps us govern ourselves in other areas and, and even over what we say and how we behave. So this is more than just physical health issues at stake here. In our opening uh, introduction to this quarter, on page three, the top uh, paragraph that begins, of course it makes perfect sense. Somebody read that paragraph for us. Of course it makes perfect sense that God would care about our physical health. After all, he created us as physical beings. Before sin, before the fall, we were already in the flesh. We were made as fleshly beings. Our fall wasn't to the flesh. It was fall in the flesh. Our bodies aren't evil or bad. Prison houses the soul of the soul or the life, as some religions have taught. Our bodies are wonderful gifts from one God who created us in his image, and he wants us to enjoy our physical existence, at least as much as possible in this fallen world. Are you always hearing some rumbling, or is that just me? <laughs> you all are hearing it too, aren't you? Yeah, okay. All righty. Well, did you hear this paragraph? That Did it ever occur to you that Adam and Eve, prior to their fall, were made as physical beings? Physical beings with bone and muscle and tendons and brains and neurons and chromosomes and genes and DNA, and they were made as physical beings before the fall. Does everybody agree with that? Yeah. What is the implication of that? Before the fall, physical beings. Any implications from that? Our bodies are good. Our bodies are good. Did God give Adam and Eve some instructions that they were to do something before the fall? 
What, what did he tell them to do before they fell? Okay, to, to have dominion over the earth, to tend the garden, and what else? Be fruitful and multiply. Did he tell them that? Think of the implications of that. Be fruitful and multiply. Make beings in whose image? Their own image. What are the implications of that? Think it through. Does that mean that Adam and Eve had the capacity to develop and to change themselves based on free will choices? They could advance, they could develop, become more godly, more ennobled. And then when they had children, the children would be in their image. How about if they were to make choices to rebel against God? To sin. Would their children be in the image of Adam and Eve as sinners? Is that what's happened? Psalms 51, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Does that have anything to do with biology? Did their biology change? Yes, it did. Now, it's interesting, I'm bringing this up because there is a theory out there that, uh, that says something like this. At the fall, at the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that the tree of knowledge of good and evil had some type of um, biotoxin in it, some type of biological weapon, that when they ate the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the tree of knowledge of good and evil introduced an, a toxin into their physical bodies that altered their DNA, that genetically changed them, and that is the sin problem that brings pain, suffering, and death. And that the, the, the plan of salvation is the plan of salvation of, of fixing our DNA. This is a theory that is emerging now in Christianity. If you haven't heard it yet, I, I wanted to bring this before you and let you process through the pros and cons of it. What do you all think about this theory? And the evidence that they try to support or claim for this is that as soon as Adam and Eve ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we find in Scripture God saying, let's not let them have access to the tree of life, lest there be an immortal sinner. And so the tree of life was to have some healing remedy aspect to it that would have countered the bio-weapon effects of the uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil and would have allowed them to continue living in sin eternally. What are your thoughts about this? How do you break it down? It sounds punitive. Sounds punitive. What does it mean? Well, let's, let's take the idea of, of what do you think it means when God said, let's not let them reach out their hand and take of the fruit of the tree of life lest there be an immortal sinner. What do you think that means? It was meant for sinless beings. Would they have continued to live had they had access to the tree of life? Would that have prevented death from all causes? So if they had access to the tree of life, Cain could not have smashed Abel's head with a rock. That couldn't happen. If they had the access to the tree of life, the laws of physics are suddenly suspended. So a nuclear weapon that was made to destroy Hiroshima in a sinful world would not have any effect on human beings and human bodies that are made of physical flesh and material. The human body would just be completely impervious to the laws of physics if you have access to the tree of life. Is that what it means? No. Or could death still happen? Fine, death. Dying, dying, physical death. Physical death. Maybe it's more symbolic of, um, you know, like of what the reality was, what was happening. They're away from the real tree of life, God, and so now they're subject to all the deterioration that comes with being away from the ways of God and apart from God. But if they had access to the tree of life, would they have been deteriorating? That's the question. Some people take this very literally. 
um, and believe that the tree of, of life provides physical health to the body. I actually am one of those. I think the tree of life does provide physical health to the body. Yes? There was something in that tree that Satan desired to have. He said there was something in the tree Satan desired to have. I don't know that Satan would have benefited from it. Well, he, is that because he knew that's where God didn't want them to go? You're talking about the tree of knowledge of good and evil or the tree of life? No, the knowledge of good. Uh, we're talking the tree of life, yes. Yeah. Um, this is sort of off topic, but what, is, it, is what you're saying that I sin because of my DNA? Uh, I'm just trying to... That's the theory. This is the idea of the theory that Adam and Eve's sin problem is a physical problem, not a character problem. And, and Christ came to fix our DNA. So what, this is the theory that's being emerged. And, and, and I'm, I'm putting it out here because I want you to be prepared for it. Because it's coming. If you go to a lecture, a lecture was just held out at Loma Linda, California by somebody who's promoting this. And uh, they bring a lot of science in. And they will show you a lot of facts about our human genome today. They will show you a lot of facts about how our DNA, our human DNA today, has animal DNA in the human body. There's been uh, viral DNA and other foreign DNA that has become part of the human genome. And this is uh, one of the reasons why we have a lot of problems and defects that we have today, because our genome is not the way God made it. And so uh, they will show a lot of science about this and then argue that this is, this is really what the sin problem is, a physical change in our being. And they, and they argue that it was the tree of knowledge of good and evil that introduced the first viral infections of our DNA. Yes? And, and not to get off topic. Are they suggesting that man then has the capability... If that's possible, if it's physics, then man can fix that, and man can become that. Well, the proponents of this theory would argue against that. That's what Christ came to do. But I like your thinking that if that's all it is, and we just continue with science long enough, we should be able to scientifically fix the problem. So I like the way you're going with that. I think it's a flaw in the in the whole theory. But uh, they wouldn't promote that at this point, those promoters of this perspective. Um, would the access to the tree of life prevent decapitation? No. I just want you to get through. The access to the tree of life would not prevent death from all causes. What would it prevent? Well, what did God say? In the day that you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die is the classic King James interpretation. What's the literal interpretation? Dying, you will die. That's a literal interpretation. You go actually go to the literal. It's dying, you will die. What does that sound like? Dying, you will die. Does it sound like a process? Does it sound like decay into death? Does it sound like deterioration away until you die? Does it sound like aging? That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? Sure it does. And so what I think the scriptures are telling us is that the tree of life prevents simply aging. The physical body won't decay and age. That's all it would prevent. Think about if God would have left the tree of life on earth in a sinful world with human beings with selfish hearts and minds like we see in the world today. If there was actually a tree of life on earth that would prevent physical aging, what would happen on earth? Crowded. <laughs> no, see, he's wrong. He says it would be crowded. No, it wouldn't. Do you actually think if there was a real tree of life that would prevent aging on earth today that all human beings would have equal access to it? No, the most despotic and despicable and tyrannical people would have armies to control that tree, and only their evil hordes would have access to it. Isn't that not true? Yes, Yes, anybody would not have access to that. Think about if Hitler would have gotten access to that tree. 
You see the problem here. Okay? So God took the tree off of the earth, not as a punishment, but as a blessing and a protection to protect the evil from getting stronger because he knows the principles of evil and how how the evil men would have taken a, a power. This would have been power, would it not? Yeah. Tremendous power. And think about how the selfish heart would have been fighting for this power. Yeah, so God took this off not as a curse, but as a blessing to us to protect us from more and more self-destruction through violent mechanisms. So let's look at the problems of this idea that, de- that sin is in our DNA. It removes, number one, if that's the problem, it removes as the central problem in the sin problem, the character of God. God is no longer central. It's no longer central to, and it diverts our minds to other themes. It also changes the warfare between Christ and Satan is no longer a battle over truth and love versus lies and selfishness. That's not what the war between Christ and Satan is about. The war between Christ and Satan becomes a battle over physical bioweapons and physical ability to uh, reconstruct things. And if this were true, if this theory were true, that the, that the sin problem is a bioweapon problem, what would it say about God that he hasn't been able to fix this yet? He's pretty weak, isn't he? If that's really what the problem is, that's a pretty weak God. It obstructs the truth about the law of love that we've talked about in here multiple times because it's no longer about other-centered living and giving. It fails to recognize God's design and creation that our choices actually change us. We were created by God for adaptation. In Eden, biologically, Adam and Eve had the capacity, based on the choices that they made, to physiologically change themselves. That's what happened when they took of the fruit. There was nothing biologically or toxic in the fruit. Nothing harmful physically in the fruit. It was merely an expression of a thought processing change in their mind. And we talked about this before. The things you believe change you physiologically. If if you believe you're getting a a pain medicine when you're actually getting a sugar pill, your brain will release endorphins and enkephalins that they won't release if you know you're getting a sugar pill. Physiological change is based simply on what you believe. If you believe you've been cursed, your brain suppresses endorphins and cufflins and dopamine. You start aching and hurting all over. You increase the release of stress hormones. Those stress hormones react back, causing an, uh, an increased re- uh, release of glucocorticoids, which react back upon the brain, suppressing genes, gene expression changing, based on a change in belief. What we think changes us physiologically. Adam and Eve believe lies. This is the way they were designed. We were designed for adaptation. And then once they changed themselves by believing lies, they, their DNA expression changed, and they passed that expression change on to their kids. It also fails to recognize the consequence to our biology of sin in a fallen world. Eating meat. Did you know there's actually data out there that shows that when you eat meat, some of the DNA of the animal that you are eating will transverse across the mucosal membranes of your gut. And some of the DNA ends up inside the cells of your body and can actually cause protein production. They've actually done uh, studies on animals where that um, have the capacity to produce a, um, a protein that causes fluorescence. Some of these uh, animals that, uh, in, in the ocean that do this. And they would feed these, uh, these uh, uh, animal parts to, uh, to like uh, mice and, and, and lab animals. And they will then track in the, in the mucosal lining inside the cells. They see these various DNA uh, and, uh, expression is making it to the ribosomes, which produce proteins, and is causing DNA expression in the uh, animal that ate the other animal. 
So we're actually having direct transfer of DNA genetic material into your cells, not through digestion and, and, and processing and breaking down the proteins and then reassembling, but actually direct transfer when you eat animals. So what happened after the flood when they began to eat animals? Life dropped from within a few generations from 900 years to 120 years. Boom. Something happened. We, we fail to take into account the consequences to our physical biology of what sinful living has done in this theory. It also fails to take into account the meaning of dominion given to Adam. Adam was given dominion and governance over the earth. When he sinned, who got dominion? And was Satan free then to wreak havoc in nature? And what does scripture say in, in Romans 8.22? All of nature groans under the weight of sin. Satan has been playing with, with animal and, and human DNA. And if you look at the research and uh, what happened before the flood, do you think the human beings living before the flood were doing a lot of uh, amalgamations and genetic experiments and, and uh, interbreeding of species and all this stuff? Yeah, that's my personal theory as to where most of the dinosaurs and stuff came from, was, was experimentation on a genetic level. Do you know today, in science right now, we have all types of interspecies uh, hybrids now. We have all types of interspecies hybrids where we will take DNA material from one species, put it in another species, and have them produce um, proteins from the other species. We're looking at now, for instance, pigs that will grow human hearts. So we can then take those hearts and transplant them into humans. This type of thing going on. All types of, of interspecies amalgamations and blending of DNA materials going on in science right now today. Do you think the people that lived 900 years were intelligent enough to figure some of this stuff out? Closer to the tree of life, closer to the hand of... Do you think Adam was smarter than we are? Yes. And do you think his descendants were? So for us to be so arrogant to think that they couldn't do some of this stuff before the flood is ridiculous. Of course they were doing some of this stuff before the flood. This is one of the reasons why God brought the flood, to destroy some of these amalgamations. I'm really going through this because you're going to hear it. It's, it's really emerging. It, it makes the plan of salvation not about the character and the heart and the motives, but about your biology. And it undermines the accomplishments of Christ at the cross. Now think this through. If the sin problem is primarily about your physical biology, infection of the DNA, then why did Adam and Eve have to choose to take of the tree? I mean, if it was really just a bioweapon, why didn't Satan just launch his bioweapon? Right? If that's all it was about, it was about a choice they had to make. They had to choose to disobey, to rebel, which altered their internal sense and their character. And if we consider the plan of salvation and what God is trying to accomplish in us, tell me, what is God trying to accomplish in us? His His image, which is primarily? His character. So the plan of salvation, what does the scripture teach? A new heart and a right spirit, remove the heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh, circumcision of the heart by the spirit, being reborn, having the mind of Christ, writing the law on the heart and mind. I mean, does the scripture tell us in multiple different ways that the plan of salvation is a regenerating process of our heart, minds, and characters? That's what's going on. If we make this about a physical healing primarily, exclusively, then what we do is we actually miss the transformation of heart and mind that God is trying to achieve in us today. And if you think about this as being just physical, did Christ on earth, when he was here 2,000 years ago, do physical healings? The woman with the issue of blood, the lepers, the blind, the deaf, and even raising the dead, did that require DNA fixes? 
Yes, absolutely. He was changing and altering DNA expression and healing those people. Did that fix the sin problem? No. No. Even Lazarus, who was raised from the dead after three or four days in the tomb, was still a sinner, wasn't he? Yes, he was still a sinner. It didn't fix the sin problem to fix biological tissue. Don't get caught up into this kind of theory. It's, when you hear it, if you hear it, it's going to sound very scientific. And, and you can accept the science in this regard. Since the fall, has our biology been increasingly more diseased? Yes. And since the fall, have we had all types of alterations to our DNA? Yes, that is true. But recognize the sequence of where it came. It's a consequence of sin. It is not in itself the sin problem. And so keep it in its right order. Yes? How that we are transformed is in our DNA being changed. He says when we're being transformed, yes, we're going to ultimately, he says when this mortal puts on immortality and this corruption puts on incorruption, there will be a physical healing to be sure. There's no question about it. Which comes first, healing of the body or healing of the character? character. Which came first, defect in the character or defect in the body? Notice which is first. It's always about the heart, mind, and character, and the physiology follows behind. This is trying to reverse that order. This theory is trying to put the physiology first and the character second, which ultimately puts us out of sequence and avoids the actual healing that we need. I mean, when I look in the mirror, I'm very thankful that I know this is not as good as God can do. <laughs> Aren't you? When you look in the mirror and go, boy, I'm glad God can do better than this. And if you're not sure now, just wait about 50 years and look in the mirror. You'll, you'll be sure. Am I right? Am I right, guys? Yes, yes, yes. All right. So let's, we move from our introduction. Let's move into Sabbath's lesson. And somebody refresh the first two paragraphs there. It starts as the Hubble telescope. As the Hubble telescope has probed ever deeper into the universe, the mysteries of creation have become even ever grander. If such limitlessness is incomprehensible to our finite minds, how much more so must be its creator, who by necessity must be more complex than what he has created. If we cannot understand the universe itself, how could we fully comprehend the one who made it? So far, the Namathite asks Job, Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the end of the Almighty? The answer, of course, is that we can't. So what's the meaning? What do you think the message the quarterly is trying to send us is? God is infinite. Don't try and know him. You can't know him. Don't bother. Is that the message? Does it sound like somebody says that's what it sounds like? You can't search out the deep things of God. Why are you even trying? What are you thinking? What's John 17, 3 say? This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Wait a minute. I'm confused. We can't search out the deep things of God. Life eternal is knowing God. We're in trouble then, aren't we? Or maybe the lesson is just trying to tell us that we can't know God other than God chose to reveal himself to us. Okay. All right. Well, that, that makes sense. We couldn't actually find him, but he has he chosen to reveal himself to us. And don't forget Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
Are we going to be able to find him if we seek him? Yes. So while it is true God is infinite, while we will never plumb the depths and, and come to a 100% knowledge of God, because he's infinite, we will for all eternity be discovering new things about God. It is not true that we should not be seeking him. It is not true that we cannot find him because he has chosen to reveal himself to us. So we can find him if we seek him and we need to be seeking him. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We will become to know him more and more and more through all eternity. It will never come an end to that. Through all eternity. We just can't understand that power that he has. I don't know. I think we'll understand all I think we'll understand various aspects of God through all eternity. I think we will. I think we'll just grow in our knowledge, but we'll never we'll never come to the end of it. But right now, yeah. when we ask God to do something for us, we say, Well, he can't do that, or we limit his what we think his power to do. Let's go on to the next paragraph. It says as if all this were not enough, the same God who created the universe is the one who, in the person of Jesus, bore not only our humanity, but our sins as well. The God who created the universe faced in himself the punishment for our iniquities in order that we could have eternal life. When you hear this idea of Christ bearing our sins, is there a difference in Christ bearing our humanity and bearing our sins? Or... Is our humanity infected with sinfulness? And when Christ chose to bear our humanity, he took our sinfulness upon himself. And this is what the scripture means by Christ bearing our sins. Thoughts about that? Is bearing our sins bearing our humanity because he took our humanity upon himself? Or do you think bearing our sins means transfers of behaviors? You know, that, that all the sins ever committed, past, present, and future, were transferred to Christ at the cross and behaviors are transferred to him? Or does bearing our sins mean he bore our condition, our sinfulness upon himself when he chose to unite his divinity with our humanity? We have an a online class member, Ray Vandenhoven. Maybe some of you know Ray. And he emailed me this week with, a, with, a couple, with this quotation. This is a quotation out of Review and Herald, July 28, 1874. And think of, think of the meaning of this quotation. And in order to elevate fallen man, Christ must reach him where he was. He took human nature and bore the infirmities and degeneration of the race. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He humiliated himself to the lowest depths of human woe that he might be qualified to reach man and bring him up from the degradation in which sin had plunged him. What does that sound like to you? He who knew no sin became sin. What is being described? He became human. He took our nature upon himself. Well, that would kind of go with this idea. Here's another quote that I found out of Confrontation, page 32. It says, what a contrast the second Adam presented. Who's the second Adam? Jesus. Jesus. What a contrast the second Adam presented as he entered the gloomy wilderness to cope with Satan single-handedly. Since the fall, the race had been decreasing in size and physical strength and sinking lower in the scale of moral worth up to the period of Christ's advent to the earth. In order to elevate fallen man, Christ must reach him where he was. He took human nature and bore the infirmities and degeneracy of the race. 
He who knew no sin became sin for us. He humiliated himself to the lowest depths of human woe that he might be qualified to reach man and bring him up from the degradation in which sin had plunged him. Very similar quote, but a slightly different angle on it. What does it sound like is being described here? Taking sin upon himself, becoming sin for us. Is that the same thing as partaking of her humanity, our fallen nature, our condition? For the what purpose? Well, to heal us. To heal us. Oh, did you hear that? To heal us, to change us. What do you think makes more sense? That Christ partook of our condition that is sick and terminal from Adam's sin, or that Christ took every sin ever committed by every person and somehow it was magically transferred to him at the cross and he was punished for all those things? You see, what is the problem with the theory that every individual act of sin was transferred to Christ on the cross and he was punished for all those acts of sin? What's the problem with Throw some problems out. Why does that theory fall up short? Number one, it doesn't change the sinner. I like that. What else? Well, if that were true, and, and people argue this, that all the sins ever committed, past, present, and future, were piled upon Christ at the cross, and he was punished on the cross for those sins, then would that, what would that mean about Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin, who together killed 100 million people? And killing 100 million people, it shortened their lives, right? And then how many sins were not committed by those people because their lives were shortened? That's billions, right? Billions of sins never committed. So those people, Stalin and Hitler, reduced Christ's suffering on the cross. Less sins piled upon them because they reduced all the sins committed. How about people who perform abortions then? We have hundreds of millions of children never born, so they never commit sin, so none of those sins are put on Christ at the cross. So the more abortions we commit, then the more we help reduce the sufferings of Christ on the cross. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yes, this is the type of thing that would, it would mean it would be true though, wouldn't it? If every act of sin piled upon him and he was punished for it, then if we can reduce the acts of sin, we reduce the suffering. Then murder would be a good thing. You see how twisted this idea is. It's a completely twisted, distorted idea. Every act of sin, behavior, can behavior be transferred? No. 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 Behavior can't be transferred. Yes. And look at the, I love it. Look at the implications it says about our Heavenly Father. And what he needs. See, and the problem now is that we're appeasing an angry, wrathful God. And the problem with sin is when man sinned, God became mad and angry. He needed to exact his vengeance. He needed something to appease his wrath. He needed something to assuage his anger. And so really the problem with sin is an angry, wrathful God, not our condition. But if we take this other view, then when man sinned, man got changed, not God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son but gave him up, how will he not along with him also give us all things? Can you say that faster? (laughs) But the point is, God is for us. He's always been for us. Is that not true? Yes. He doesn't need persuasion. John 16, 26, Jesus says, I will not pray the Father for you because the Father loves you himself. Do we have this idea that God is always on our side? He is always our friend. As soon as man fell into sin, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit began intervening and interceding to redeem, save, and restore us. And so the plan of salvation, Christ came to fulfill the Father's purpose in redeeming and restoring humanity back to God's original intent as he made Adam in the garden. How was that to be achieved? Christ had to take upon himself our infirmities, our iniquity, in order to overcome and restore. And thus we read, and uh, Ray also sent this 
text along and pointed out a connection, how the New Testament authors interpret this text. This is Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down and of God and afflicted. Matthew eight sixteen and 17. This is how the New Testament apostle interprets the meaning of this. Because traditionally, how do we interpret Isaiah 53? All of the sins were piled upon Christ. And he was punished for our sins and flogged and so forth. Here's what Matthew 8, 16 and 17 says. That evening they brought to him many who were possessed with demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and cured all who were sick. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took our, our affirmities and bore our diseases. Whoa, wait, 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 wait. You mean this isn't a punishment that he took upon himself? You mean he's actually healing? He's actually freeing us from disease? He's actually transforming us? He's renewing us? He's regenerating us? And so is it the, the, is it the apostle's application that when Christ bore our infirmities and took our iniquities upon himself and carried our diseases, that he was actually healing us from sin? That's what it's talking about. That he bore away, what's what's it say? Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. We shall call his name Emmanuel for... He shall save his people from their sins. This is Lamb of God which takes away... No, this is Lamb of God which receives the punishment for the sin of the world. That's not what it says, is it? This is Lamb of God which takes away our sin, removes it. Just like removing our diseases. He carries them away. From from where? Where does he carry it away? From us. From our hearts and minds. Yes. Uh, would that kind of might be if your doctor gave you some medicine or did a surgery and you were healed. He doesn't take that uh, wound you had. He, the doctor remains like he is, but you're healed. I like it. Yes, I like it very much. Notice the prophecy of Isaiah, which Matthew has interpreted as Christ taking away and actually healing us from sin and disease. The prophecy of Isaiah says we're going to misunderstand. Notice this. I'll read it again. Surely he borne our infirmities and carried away our diseases, yet we accounted or considered him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. What did the prophet Isaiah say would happen? That Christ would come, take our infirmities upon himself in order to carry away sin, heal our diseases, restore us back to righteousness. But we would consider that God struck him down, that God abused him, that God afflicted him, that God was punishing him for our sin. What is taught in most of Christianity? This lie. This lie that the prophet said would happen, that we would misunderstand. Where is that in Isaiah? Isaiah 53.4. But let's go on to Isaiah 53.5. Notice Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Another text that is used to say, penal substitution, we were in legal trouble, we have to be punished and executed and tormented before we die. And Christ came, took all the sins upon him, and the Father punished him and killed him. Right after the prophecy that say we misunderstand, the very next text says this, and it's still interpreted in this way. Here's what Peter interprets this text as. First Peter 2, 24 and 25. Notice what Peter says. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Notice that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
for by his wounds you are healed. What does that sound like to you? How does Peter interpret Isaiah? That he bore our sin. The word, by the way, if you look up the Greek, the word translated in all the scriptures as sins is also the same word translated as sin or translated as sinfulness. You can translate it any way. It's the same exact word. Sins, sin, sinfulness. So, he bore our sin or sinfulness, it says, in his body. What does that mean? Could it mean what we've been, what we've read in these earlier passages? That he took our condition upon himself, our fallen nature upon himself, our infirmities, the condition that Adam put the human race into, Christ accepted that condition in order to fix it. Yes. He took our sin, and it says, and bore our sin in his body on the cross, his physical condition. And for what purpose? And the, and the apostle here, First Peter, gives us the purpose. He did this for what purpose? To appease the wrath and anger of God. To meet the legal justice of God and pay the, the divine justice, just penalty for our sin. Is that what it says? No. It says, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. In other words, his mission on earth was to take our condition, which is terminal, and in his own body deal with that condition, cure it, so that we might die to sin and live eternally to righteousness. It's for our healing, for our regeneration, for our restoration, for our recreation. This is the purpose of what Christ was achieving at the cross, not to somehow appease his angry dad. In fact, when you put the scriptures together, again, the whole Godhead is working for us. Any questions, thoughts about that? Sunday's lesson. Top paragraph. By creating humanity with free moral will, that is, by giving humans the capacity to choose to obey or disobey him, God also had made provision for the potential consequences should humanity make the wrong choice with the freedom given it. That provision is what's known as the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us in order to restore us to eternal life that we originally were created to have. And another one of our online class members named Jim Norton emailed me this week, commenting on last week's class, but it fits right here. And this is what he emailed me. When I am in dialogue with others, I often mention that that three key terms in Christianity are corrupted. Gospel, grace, and salvation. I was listening to lesson number 13, where you were presenting a competent segmented study on the word mystery and moving on to gospel. I heard the definition of gospel being God is love come from the audience after you mentioned that the gospel was eternal. I will not challenge that input at face value, yet because of Nehemiah 8.8 and 1 Corinthians 14.3, the definition begs elaboration. Those two texts tell us that we should explore the meaning of Scripture, not just accept Scripture at face value. So he's using those to say we need to explore what it means. When I looked in the Bible and the SOP for clues as to the definition of the gospel, I take note of the equivalent word is. One is Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God into salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he quotes Bible, Bible Echo 1894. The gospel is the good news of grace or favor by which man may be released from the condemnation of sin and enabled to render acceptance and obedience to the law. And Desire of Ages 824, we should lay hold of his promise and pray 
for the manifestation of his power, the very essence of the gospel is restoration. And the Savior would have us bid the sick, the hope, hope, hopeless, and the afflicted take hold of his strength. What led me to do more searching years ago was the erroneous emphasis on static positional doctrine to the diminution of dynamic experiential sanctifying truth. And that's the end of his email. What do you think about it? Do you like what he said at the end? That our gospel should be dynamic, experiential, and sanctifying. Don't you think the gospel message should actually have some real-life effect in people? Yes. If it's not actually dynamic and changing and life-transforming, then something is wrong with the message. What do you think the gospel is, then? What is the gospel? We heard it is the power of God from Romans. Well, let me give you this because he was questioning the question of eternal. Revelation 14.6 says, Then I saw an angel flying in midair. Which angel is this? The first of the three. Yeah, the first of the three. Yeah, this is a message for this time in, in human history according to Revelation. Then I saw another angel flying in midair and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every tribe, nation, language, and people. The eternal gospel. Eternal. What does that mean, eternal? Forever, ever into the future? Or is it eternity past as well? So the gospel, whatever the gospel is, it's eternally true past past and future? Is it eternally true that Christ died for our sins in the eternity past? No, it was the plan. It was the plan, but it ha- was it eternity past true that that man needed a, 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 a savior. In fact, did man even exist in eternity past? It was in the heart of God. So we have to look at what was in the heart of God. What does it mean? Is the good news restoration? Was God's creation needing restoration in eternity past? No. Hmm. But yet, we have a quote that the gospel is restoration. Hmm. Is the good news, as many Christians will tell you, what's the good news? What's the gospel? That Jesus died for your sins and you can have eternal life and live with God forever. That's the good news. Is that the good news? Would it be good news that you could live forever with God if God is the kind of being Satan says he is? Would you like to live with a being like that forever? So is the ultimate good news we get to live forever with God, or is the ultimate good news God is not like what Satan alleges he is? That's the good news. The good news is the character of God himself, that the scriptures say God is love. This is the good news, is it not? And ultimately, if this is the good news about God himself, then eternal life is knowing God. So wait a minute, we're back to the gospel is the power of God to salvation, as Paul says, and the good news about God, if we come back to know him, what do we have? Life eternal is knowing God. Do we see a connection between the power of the good news of God's character being connected to salvation and eternal life? It's the same good news. It's the same message that God is as Jesus revealed him to be. It's restorative. Here's a Christ Object Lessons 128. Many who claim to believe and to teach the gospel are in error. They set aside the Old Testament scriptures of which Christ declared, these are they which testify of me. In rejecting the old, they virtually reject the new, for both are parts of an inseparable whole. No man can rightly present the law of God without the gospel, 
or the gospel without the law. The law is the gospel embodied, and the gospel is the law unfolded. The law is the root, the gospel is the fragrant blossom and fruit which it bears. Isn't that beautiful? Now, how do you put that together? Law and gospel, law and gospel, fruit, fruit. How do you put it together? How do you see it? God. Pardon? The character of God is... The character of God is displayed in both. Would you ask the question, which law? What does the scripture say is the royal law of scripture? The royal law of scripture is love your na- love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. This is the law. God is love. It eman- so where does the law of love originate? In the character and heart of God. We're right back to the same thing again. The gospel is the truth about God. The law is originating in the heart and mind of God, the law of love. Those who understand and appreciate this law, this good news of God, are transformed by it and love others more than self. And what have we talked about in here repeatedly? In science and in nature, what does the principle of love or the principle of giving do to beings who practice it? How does it change them? Physiologically, the law of love, the law of giving, the law of altruism, the law of beneficence is physiologically healing. It actually results in reduction of the stress diathesis, calms the amygdala, the stress cascade. We actually have well documented in science, when you love, when you give, when you practice this method, you have lower blood pressure, lower heart rate, lower stress hormones, lower physical disease. You live longer and you live better if you love. If you live a life of selfishness, you have more stress, more anxiety, more tension, more stress hormones. You have higher rates of of heart attacks and strokes and cancers and physical illnesses. This is a physiological consequence. Demonstrating in 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 the world today that we can look around and see that the law of love, which emanates from the character of God, is the law of life. The first words in the Conflict of the Ages series in the book Patriarchs and Prophets says this. The very first words, and it's a five-book series about this long, and I'm going to read the first words and the very last words out of Great Controversy. First words, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 33. God is love. His nature, his law, is love. It ever has been, it ever will be. What is it ever has been, ever, does that sound eternal? Eternal. Eternal. Last words and Great Controversy, page 678. From the minutest atom to the greatest world, all things, animate and inanimate, in their unshattered beauty and perfect joy, declare that God is love. The whole gospel message, folks, the whole problem with sin started over Satan's allegations in heaven that God is something other than love. That God is selfish. That God is arbitrary. That God is severe. That God is exacting. That God is unforgiving. That God is a power monger. That God doesn't love his creatures more than he loves himself. Jesus destroyed all those lies. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And Christ on the cross reveals that he loves you so much that even though he has all power, he would rather let you kill him then use his power to stop you. That's how much he loves you. All these lies about God are are, are destroyed. It is the law of love which brings us back to unity with God. And then the the one we read about, um, the gospel is the good news of grace. Let's turn to Monday's lesson, which talks about grace. What is grace? The, the, the lesson would have us believe and gives us the definition that grace is unmerited favor. Have you heard this, this definition, unmerited favor? We don't deserve it, 
but God gives it. That's grace. I would suggest to you that it, that unmerited favor is included or part of grace. It's like a segment, a wedge of grace. But it, if you stop with that definition, you're missing the larger reality of what grace is. Unmerited means, of course, we don't deserve it. Would Jesus Christ deserve his Father's grace, his Father's favor? Or would, would favor shown to Jesus be unmerited? Well, interestingly enough, the Scripture says in Luke 2.52, that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Do you know the Greek word there translated favor? Is the same word translated in Scripture as grace. And that we say is unmerited favor. You notice the translators left the word unmerited out when they translated it. They just translated it as favor. Same word. So if we narrow our definition that grace means unmerited favor... We miss something here. Christ merited it, but he still received favor from his father. Favor. It's uh, used 130 times. That same word is grace. And the word is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. And it means goodwill, loving kindness, favor, of merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and and kindles them to the exercise of Christian virtues. Does grace describe the party receiving it or the one rendering it? Oh, you see, when we put unmerited favor, where are we putting the emphasis? Isn't that how we always seem to do it? We always seem to put us at the center. Who's to be at the center? God and Christ. Fix your eyes on Christ, the scripture tells us. No, grace is about the one rendering the grace. Can you have grace without a gracious being giving the grace? Could we say God's grace is God's work for his creation, his work to sustain those in the loyalty who have never fallen, as well as his work to redeem those in rebellion against him? Could we say that? That's what God's grace is. And could we then say, in other words, God's grace is love in action? We're right back to the gospel is the truth about God's character of love, which was ultimately revealed in Christ, who being equal to God, did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking upon himself our terminal sick condition and suffering the consequences of that unhealed condition all the way through the cross with the purpose of destroying it and restoring God's perfect law of love back into the human species again. To fix what we could not fix. And thus Hebrews 5.8 says that once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who will obey him. He came to make man perfect again. And in his own journey, he accomplished that feat. And now he becomes the source of salvation. He is the vine, we are the branches. In faith, in trust, as we see the beauty of God's character of love, if the lies about him are expelled from our mind, as we're one back to trust, we open the heart. Romans 5, 5 says he pours his love into our hearts. God is Love. He pours himself into our hearts. We actually, it says in Peter, become partakers of the divine nature. He restores within us his character, writes his laws, it says in Hebrews, on our hearts and minds. We actually become like him again, regenerated and restored to be like Christ. Questions or thoughts about that?
and we see then the gospel is the good news. It's incredible good news. And we have a message to share. Yes. I appreciate it, God, and looking at us the way we are and how far we've degenerated. It is able and willing and desires to see us as we could be and willing to take action to make that happen for us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Let's close with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not leave us down here dying in our terminal state. You knew that we couldn't heal ourselves. And yet in your great love, you humbled yourself. You came and partook of our nature, our condition. You who knew no sin became sin so that we might become your righteousness, that we might become like you again, that we might be restored back fully to your original design as you intended in Adam. Father, remove for us the distortions, the fears, the insecurities, the misperceptions that we might trust you with our lives and our hearts and that we might experience your your presence to write in our hearts and minds your law of love, that we will be like you and witness this truth to a dying world, that we may lighten the world with this internal gospel so that the end may come. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.